COVID infection rates are surging nationally. So public health officials, policymakers, and, well, most of us are pinning our hopes on a vaccine. And the news on that front is looking pretty good. We seem to have not just one vaccine, but at least three. That's pretty hopeful. In an emergency like this, it's important to have many shots on goal. With options like multiple vaccines come choices and questions. Which vaccine? How will we distribute it? And these aren't just individual questions. This is a global crisis, with costs and benefits working a bit differently at a national scale. Social and private benefits work in so many ways in the context of a pandemic, whether it's social distancing, whether it's wearing face masks. At an individual level, you or I may want to wait to take the one that's 90% efficacious, but at the level of the country and at the level of society, it would be much better off if we all did it quickly. Looking ahead, to what extent do we have to keep building our capacity to make more vaccines? And how should they be distributed globally? This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie. How it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of today. And in this episode, we're going to look at the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm Tess Viglund. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. I spoke with Michael Kremer, university professor in economics at the University of Chicago and director of the Development Innovation Lab. He was also co-recipient of the 2019 Nobel Prize in Economics. When you take an economics class, you learn that the formal definition of the good doesn't just include what the good is, but also when it's delivered. That seems like a extra bit of formality and sort of a technical detail. But I think that really comes home when you think about COVID-19 vaccines. There's a huge difference between getting a vaccine in February and getting it next November. If you think about those of you who hired contractors to work on your house, you know that it's very easy for the contractor to just say, sorry, I wasn't able to deliver on time. At that point, there's not much that can be done. I think one of the lessons of this pandemic is when we think about contracting for vaccines, we need to take that very seriously. If you just write a contract with a pharmaceutical firm that says, hey, we're going to buy you know, 300 million doses at $20 a dose, and if you don't specify the date on when those are going to be delivered, then the pharmaceutical company could just build a smaller factory and supply later. This makes it actually a very difficult contracting problem. Eduardo also spoke with Canis Prendergast, a distinguished service professor in economics at Chicago Booth and one of Michael Kremer's collaborators in designing a vaccine exchange system between countries. But even before we get there, there are so many issues to untangle. I thought that a good place to start would be to get our heads around the value of a vaccine. For people out on the street, probably the question sounds a little bit obvious. You know, it's invaluable. It's going to end this pandemic. But for governments and other actors, I guess it's important to have a more precise sense of this value. And it's the kind of thing that economists love to do. And I wonder if you could help elucidate that. How much is it worth to have a vaccine? I think one of the things that we forget is just the sheer magnitudes of the gains that can be achieved by finishing the pandemic a day earlier, a week earlier. Estimates from the World Bank, you know, which are maybe $20 billion if we could stop the vaccine by a single day. 
And that's GNP effects. And there are other estimates that say, well, double that to $40 billion a day if you include like healthcare effects, government expenditures. But maybe the biggest costs that we have here are the ones that are not being measured in, in output or money terms. You know, our children can't go to school. We can't see our families. We can't travel. The elderly and the at-risk are living in essentially social isolation. So you could easily imagine that the benefit of finishing the pandemic by a single day is $80 billion, $100 billion. Or to put it in very, very simple terms, the average person in the world would pay 10 bucks a day essentially to finish the pandemic by a single day earlier. And if we can build up capacity, we can do innovation to reduce it by a month. Just think of how big those are relative to any costs. Just to kind of like push on that idea here, you know, the pharmaceutical companies that develop a successful vaccine, they're going to reap billions from it, right? So that seems to me like a pretty powerful incentive. I mean, is it necessary for governments to provide more than that? The normal way that that pharmaceutical companies do business is they first have test vaccines. And then they, they wait till the testing is done before they invest in capacity construction. The reason they wait is that capacity construction is, is very expensive. And with vaccines, you don't really know whether they're going to work until you have the test results. So now it's very easy to, to say, well, these, these vaccines look like they're working and the company should have invested right at the beginning. Given the huge value to society, of having vaccines available, it was worth it from a social point of view to invest in vaccine manufacturing capacity even before we knew that the vaccines were successful. That's not something that normal commercial incentives for vaccine manufacturers lead them to do. Now, governments and international organizations and some private philanthropies In this case, they made a commitment to the vaccine manufacturers that they would promise to pay for these doses whether or not the vaccine succeeded. That might seem like, well, why would you promise to pay for for vaccine doses when the vaccine might or might not work? We think that it was worth it because it was important to get the vaccine manufacturers to invest in parallel rather than doing that in sequence. Luckily, it turns out that the vaccines worked. And I think that clearly after the fact, we know it was worthwhile. But I think it would would have been even more worthwhile had not all of the vaccines worked, had, had just some of them worked. It would be all the more important to have that extra capacity. And, you know, I think that there's another way to think about this, which is if you look at the amount of capacity that has been built, it's so low relative to the benefits that we described beforehand. You know, we talked about this as being the average person in the world would pay 10 bucks a day to finish the pandemic a day earlier. Last time I looked, total vaccine capacity buildup in the United States, a very wealthy country, is hardly 10 bucks per person, period. Wow. Wow. And so clearly we still need more. I mean, there's a sense that, okay, we're there. We've got three vaccines that apparently are working. Would you guys suggest that that still more government effort is necessary? I think, Eduardo, one other thing to bear in mind here is that this is a worldwide pandemic. And while we have three vaccines that we think are relatively confident will work in the context of high-income countries, 
There's a lot of climatic and geographic specificity to the world that suggests that wider variety of vaccines could be extremely valuable. So one of the challenges is going to be getting vaccines to rural parts of low-income countries. And many of the technologies that we've seen in some of the candidates that work may not be feasible for those settings. Like, for instance, this super cold temperature that you need for the Pfizer vaccine might not work in some developing countries that don't have the infrastructure, right? Something like that. That's absolutely right. And in fact, one of the, I think, most interesting issues that we will see over the next 12 months is the extent to which countries specialize in terms of the kinds of vaccines that they feel are appropriate for their populations or even parts of their populations. Interesting. But I wonder, how does a country choose? What should be the criteria? Do I take the AstraZeneca vaccine, even if its efficacy is lower than the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine? Do I wait up instead to see if I can get some from Pfizer? What would be the right response for a given country? I think one of the great misperceptions of the choice between vaccines is a focus on what ultimately are relatively small differences in efficacy at a societal level. The key issue in terms of ending the pandemic is getting to the population to a stage where we ultimately reach herd immunity. And at that stage, we can get life back to normal. It does not take long with an efficacy rate of 60 to 70 percent to get to herd immunity. I think there's a tendency for us individually to think, I would like the one that's 90% relative to the one that's, and let's take the more pessimistic, 60% for AstraZeneca. But I think a society that uses AstraZeneca quickly, rather than waiting for Moderna or Pfizer. Yeah. And I think when you're vaccinating a population, you're not only helping that population, but you're helping everybody else too. So I guess that would also call for just take whatever vaccine is available, right? I think that's right. I mean, social and private benefits work in so many ways in the context of a pandemic, whether it's social distancing, whether it's wearing face masks. But there is an issue that I suspect could crop up, which is at an individual level, you or I may want to wait to take the one that's 90% efficacious. But at the level of the country and at the level of society, it would be much better off if we all did it quickly with something that's closer to AstraZeneca levels. We have multiple vaccines because of efforts to build capacity. One of the ways that's happened is through the mechanism of advanced market commitments, which you heard a little bit about earlier. Michael Kremer was one of the architects of this system. Ten years ago, these advanced market commitments got pharmaceutical companies to develop three different vaccines for pneumococcus. This was a disease affecting predominantly poor countries that didn't have money to pay for vaccines. 150 million kids were immunized, and an estimated 700,000 lives have already been saved because of this mechanism. Now, COVID is different because rich countries that need the vaccine can pay for it. But these advanced commitments are still useful in getting companies to invest as much as they can, as fast as they can, in as many different vaccines as they can. After the break, we'll talk about what happens after the vaccines are made. How are they distributed between countries, rich and poor? As the vaccines roll out, countries are jockeying to get in front of the line. Guess who's winning? The U.S. and the U.K. have locked up enough doses to vaccinate their entire populations four times over. 
Bangladesh, by contrast, has only secured 30 million doses for a population of 160 million. In such an unequal world, how do we ensure that distribution happens fairly and effectively? I think the question that, in fact, right now is on everybody's mind is who's going to get the vaccine first? We need what? Doses for 8 billion people? Who do you allocate it to first? What mechanisms do we need? I think on the ground, it's going to occur through a combination of two things. One is a series of bilateral deals that many, many countries, typically high-income countries and some middle-income countries, have made with pharmaceutical companies. In some cases, these bilateral deals more than cover the population. So last time I looked, I think Canada has purchased nine vaccines per person. Wow. So for some countries, this is going to be the primary way in which they do it. It will be largely appended to through the COVAX facility. The COVAX facility is likely going to distribute on the order of two to three billion vaccines over the next 12 months. Many countries have signed up for this. It includes high-income countries, middle-income countries, low-income countries. So COVAX is basically pooling the resources of all these countries, becoming one big buyer, and then it distributes it kind of like equitably. Correct. Each of these countries has their own negotiation with COVAX under the circumstances under which they will enter the COVAX facility. So for the low-income countries, most of it is being mediated through donor organizations. Could be the World Bank, UNICEF, Gates Foundation, or whatever. So those are also very important constituents here. Michael, if you would talk to me a little bit about how it would be best to organize this allocation. And and, and I, I have one, one thought here is whether the incentive structures that you were talking about before, these advanced commitments to buy the vaccine, might they not actually contribute to a more inequitable rollout? So because you have these big countries like the United States committing billions of dollars to this, presumably that puts them in the front of the line and that kind of like shunts poor countries without these resources to the back. I don't want to dismiss those concerns. Those effects might be real in the short run. But I think it's also important to recognize that there's another effect that goes the opposite direction. If you think that the commitments by the U.S. and by many other countries like the U.K., to manufacturers to purchase these doses, let the manufacturers to install more capacity, then by installing more capacity, they're actually helping other countries in the long run and even in the medium run. I think it's very important that we have provisions to pay for vaccines through institutions like COVAX for people who might not otherwise Uh, be able to afford it or who would otherwise be at the end of the line. But I I, I think it's also important to recognize that there can be positive spillovers from high-income countries or middle-income countries. We would have been much better off if the world had invested even more in vaccines. So I wish that this not only the high-income countries and a few middle-income countries, but a much wider spectrum of countries had negotiated with manufacturers up front to expand capacity so that we could vaccinate everybody in the world even more quickly. It's an enormous accomplishment that we have as much capacity in place now as we do, but it would be better if we had even more. I think one issue that is likely to arise is that some high-income countries will realize that they don't need their entire allocation from COVAX. 
And I think what's going to happen is because of these bilateral agreements, there will be either donations by high-income countries or, or maybe donations with some cost recovery component that will actually increase the supply of vaccines to lower-income countries. So in a way, I think over the next year, we're likely to see one of the mandates of COVAX being to effectively distribute some additional donations. One of the things that COVAX is attempting to do is introduce an exchange system that will allow countries to have a degree of choice over what kind of vaccines they get. And in many ways, this is very similar to an environment I was involved in before, where we set up a mechanism whereby food banks could choose what kind of food they got. And the primary issue we had to deal with there was one very similar to the one that you raised, Eduardo, which is in the same way as you have bilateral agreements that some countries are getting lots of vaccines, we had some parts of the country that got lots of food from other sources. But what we managed to do was set up a choice system whereby those areas of the country which didn't have a lot of other food were given an access to a huge amount of relatively inexpensive food. And the hope is that maybe through allowing countries some degree of choice over vaccines, we can allow them to make up for the fact that they don't have these bilateral agreements. And so given this, if you can help us understand what the role of the of exchanging will play in improving the allocation, it's not immediately obvious how, you know, allowing countries to trade will actually make us all have better, quicker access. Along with two colleagues, Eric Budish and Scott Commoners, we've been talking to the relevant entities about the design of an exchange system. I think it plays a critical role on three different dimensions. The first is that countries are going to choose how to specialize between vaccines. Some countries will decide the right answer is Pfizer. So some countries will decide perhaps the right answer is one of the Chinese vaccines. So what we're going to do is we're going to find countries will try to match their own healthcare capacities and their own climates and their own geographies to specializing in a relatively small number of vaccines. Now, this also doesn't have to be a single vaccine for every country because it may be possible in some low-income countries they can use highly refrigerated vaccines in urban areas, but they can't do so in rural areas. And they'll want to match exactly what they're going to do to that. The second part is not specialization of vaccines, but it's actually over time. The last thing you want is to have a situation where you take delivery of a million vaccines, but you don't have the healthcare capacity to deliver it. So what we have to do is we have to make sure that as the pandemic evolves and as the capacity of healthcare system evolves, that we can time delivery of vaccines to the right moment. And there's another part of this which we're beginning to see, which is if you just look at, for example, Pfizer, Pfizer announced that they weren't going to be able to produce as much as they thought. So again, there's going to be situations as we move forward where it's going to be kind of bumpy, where a country's expecting to get half a million vaccines and it never shows up because of production capacity issues. You need to be able to allow them some discretion to kind of move vaccines into those time periods if they need them most then. And then the last thing I think is a, is a relatively simple one, but it's all designed to minimize waste, which is most countries will want to locate production suppliers close. Let's take an example, which is if you're Vietnam and you're told that you have to collect a, a vaccine from Canada, that's an awfully long way. All sorts of transportation issues arise, all sorts of spoilage issues potentially arise. So I think for all of those reasons, allowing discretion to countries over when they get, what they get and where they get it from 
can turn out to be extremely valuable. But to this point, Michael, is three vaccines enough? Do we have enough variety out there? Right now, when we're thinking about how best to move on in our strategy to, to, to mitigate COVID, should we be putting our money in, in increasing production capacity? Or is there a sense to try to actually incentivate the development of, of a new technologies for new vaccines? There are a number of vaccines that are in stage three trials. It takes a long time to move capacity from one vaccine to another. Again, this, this can take many, many months. In some cases, it could even take years. I think in these circumstances, you know, it's still going to take four to six months. So for vaccines that are already in stage three trials, where it's much better to include those trials and so we can start to get that capacity online, which could be very, very soon, rather than to say, well, we're going to try to shut down those factories, switch over the equipment to uh, another purpose. You might be using different size bioreactors for different vaccines. It's not even clear that the, the capacity could be moved over. The other th another actor I would mention is that all the vaccines that have been available so far are two-dose vaccines. So it's not easy to make sure that people come back for that second dose. There's a one-dose vaccine that's in development. If that does work out, that's going to make it much, much easier to get people vaccinated. Then one final uh, factor I'd mention is cost. There's a big difference between the price of some of these more advanced, what are called mRNA vaccines that came out initially, and the AstraZeneca vaccine. The mRNA vaccines, those are on the order of $20 a dose. Not doesn't sound, you know, certainly completely worth it, but still, that's not cheap for, for a very low-income country when two doses are required. The AstraZeneca vaccine will be as low as $3 per dose. It's partly because of different technologies. Also, AstraZeneca is doing this on a nonprofit basis. So I think it's you know, very important that we continue to complete the trials for uh, the vaccines that are currently in development. Well, what kind of lessons can we take from this experience to deploy in a future pandemic? Well, I think we got lucky in that all of these vaccines so far, we've had multiple vaccines working and perhaps all of them are going to work. And that means that we'll be able to vaccinate the world in a reasonable amount of time. We went into this pandemic with limited amounts of capacity, limited amounts of vaccine manufacturing capacity, and actually limited amounts of capacity for the inputs that went into vaccine supply. What we need to do next time is make sure that we've got the, the inputs available, the bioreactors, the glass vials, the, what's, the adjuvants, which is another input. And then as soon as uh, a pandemic hits, at that point, we should invest in multiple candidates. We should build out large-scale capacity, even larger-scale capacity than we built out this time, so that we've got the insurance, so that if, if only some of those vaccines work, not all of them, we'll have enough capacity that we can vaccinate the world quickly. I think one other thing that we should take away from this is that we need to change the way we, we think about this. You know, people have often talked about the race for a vaccine. If you think about a race, a literal race, you know, there's only one winner of a race. Whoever wins that race, you know, gets the gold medal and the other people don't. If you think about the characteristics of, of, of scientific research in general, once we've developed a vaccine, 
if somebody may get that vaccine first, but the whole world's able to benefit from that vaccine. So it's really in the interest of the entire globe. We put in place sufficient capacity, first for the vaccine inputs and then ultimately for the vaccine production itself so that we can get a vaccine as quickly as possible and so we can put capacity in place simultaneously with the testing process. So the minute the vaccines are approved, we can start to roll, roll them out and do so very rapidly so we can speed access to the world. Can I, can I add yeah, two please, things please. to that, Eduardo? There are largely two ways in which one can encourage countries to innovate in the context of a pandemic like this. One is at the back end by allowing them to charge high prices. But for a variety of entirely appropriate reasons, the world decides that that's not the right way to go. But if you're going to go that route, the alternative likely has to be that there's public support for capacity. And I think that's the lesson in some sense that we had from this. And this is something that Michael has been emphasizing for many, many years. The second point I would emphasize is in some sense a small twist to, again, a comment that Michael made that I totally agree with, which is the need to encourage innovation in lots of different vaccines. You have to encourage vaccines that are trying to do very different things. I think we got lucky in terms of this pandemic that a number of the MNRA vaccines, the pharma companies were sort of mining the same terrain, and we got lucky that it worked. However, what you often really need to do is you need to try to encourage those ones that may not work, because it's precisely you, those are the ones you may need if the ones that are more likely to work turn out not to pan out. So I think one of the things that you really need is to subsidize and encourage a very wide diversity of different kinds of approaches. And I think that's one of the lessons going forward. You know, in an emergency like this, it's important to have many shots on goal. If you get lucky and you you have too much vaccine available, you know, that's a wonderful problem to have. The investment is worth it. Next time on The Pie, we'll talk about the impact of gender on labor markets. How have dynamics shifted during the pandemic? What has this year been like for women? A lot of surveys show that women are bearing the brunt of Zoom time with children. Does that have long-term impacts? And I think we have to wait to see, but I think people suspect that there will be long-term impacts. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in this series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland.